Lieutenant Britton Davis owed his life to a turkey. Davis was walking along the aptly named Turkey Creek in the White Mountains and was ascending to a ridge above his camp when he heard the bird make its distinctive call. The lieutenant had a job to do. Indeed, he was going up to this particular ridge because he wanted to check on some of the more unruly Chiricahua Apache that had made their camp up there. But he also really enjoyed a good turkey dinner. In fact, he had just bragged about it to a fellow officer named Lieutenant Parker West, who he had also invited to join him for a few days. So, momentarily giving up his duty, Davis turned around and bagged the turkey. The dinner turned out to be just as delicious as he had promised, and Davis went to bed that night fully content. Then he got the signal. His scouts had come to him that night and said that they needed to meet discreetly. Once they were face-to-face, the first thing they asked him is, why had he turned around while heading up to the ridge? After he had explained that he had turned around to hunt the turkey, one of the scouts remarked that the bird must have actually been the guardian spirit of one of Davis's ancestors. Because unbeknownst to the lieutenant, at the top of the ridge, the Chiricahua that he was going to check up on were in the middle of a celebration involving a lot of the banned alcoholic drink known as Tiswin. Then they had seen Davis heading up to their home, rifle in his hand. Thinking someone had ratted them out and Davis was coming to arrest them, the Chiricahua had then grabbed their own weapons and were waiting at the top of the ridge to ambush the young officer. Davis would later write, quote, Had I shown my head above the ridge of that bluff, it would have received more lead than it could well have accommodated. End quote. This incident would be amusing if it wasn't masking all the underlying tensions that were plaguing the settlement at Turkey Creek. The Tiswin, the defiant Chiricahua, rabble-rousing leaders, and the use of secret scouts would all eventually conspire to bring down the growing settlement in just a year's time. That Turkey may have well saved Davis's life, but it could do nothing about everything else that was unraveling all around him. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 101, Turkey Creek. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we followed along with the Apache starting to make their home again on the San Carlos Reservation and saw that Geronimo himself finally came back to Arizona, though some months overdue in the minds of the white American officers. But as we also talked about last week, most of the Chiricahua weren't content to stay along the Gila River, with its malaria-ridden climate in close proximity to unfriendly bands and the definitely unfriendly Indian agent. However, at least one of the Chiricahua was making threatening noises about leaving the reservation altogether and heading to Mexico again. This was, of course, the young leader Kaitene, the headstrong buck we introduced last week. Even before Geronimo reached San Carlos, Kaitene was talking about heading south of the border once again. 
Still touting the fact that he had never been beaten by U.S. troops, the young leader was trying to show the fighting Apache spirit that he felt was right for a Chiricahua leader. Captain Emmett Crawford, still keeping a watchful eye over the Chiricahua at San Carlos, wanted to arrest him immediately, but resisted only because he didn't know what effect that would have on Geronimo, who was always ready to run from a reservation anytime someone sneezed. But Kaitene was simply incorrigible. Things almost came to a head when a young man from the leader's band had badly beaten a woman and then was defiant when Crawford ordered him to come in. Eventually, the young man did come in, bringing his father and Kaitene with him. The young man wouldn't submit to being tossed in the guardhouse, and eventually even Kaitene challenged Crawford to try and arrest all of them if he could. Crawford stood his ground and the situation only de-escalated when the captain threatened to resign right then and there. The implied threat being that they would be left to the mercy of Indian agent Philip P. Wilcox, who was not merciful in the slightest. After this, Kaitene appeared contrite and kept his head down, but, as we'll see, he was far from cowed. By the late spring of 1884, every Chiricahua was accounted for at San Carlos, and that meant it was time to start seriously considering sending them all to the proposed location at Turkey Creek. Here, though, we hit yet another roadblock, as Geronimo suddenly declared that Crook had promised him a place along Eagle Creek, another tributary of the Gila River that runs roughly north-south from the base of the White Mountains west of modern Clifton. Now, this claim was total bunk, by the way, but Geronimo would still say that he had been promised that he could settle wherever he liked. Crawford would explain to Geronimo that Eagle Creek was on private property, to which the chief asked, why didn't the government buy it and give it to the Indians? However, it didn't really matter what Geronimo thought, most of his fellow Chiricahua were willing to give Turkey Creek a go. By early April, most had made the decision to relocate. But now we run into yet another hiccup. So, long story short, Crook's ambition was always to have the Apache become settled, prosperous farmers who could sustain themselves with their own crops and maybe even sell some to get some spending money. But for that plan to succeed, they obviously needed farming implements and seeds, something that Indian agent Wilcox had been ordered months ago to obtain for them. Suddenly, though, the army's about to move all these people, and Wilcox isn't answering Crawford's questions about where those farming tools are. Eventually, Wilcox sent word that he couldn't just go out and procure those supplies without authorization from the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, though he had already been given $3,000 some time previously with the express intent of him purchasing exactly what Crawford was waiting for. And thus, Wilcox's streak of pettiness continues unabated. Eventually, the top-level officials in Washington had to get involved again, and Secretary of the Interior Henry Teller finally ordered Wilcox to just get the supplies and hand them over, directly to the Chiricahua themselves so he wouldn't have to, you know, speak with Crawford at all. Alright, with that latest round of childish nonsense over, the roughly 520 willing Chiricahua could now finally start moving to their new home in the White Mountains in early May 1884, so roughly one year after Crook had found them in Mexico 
and persuaded most of them to come to San Carlos. Lieutenant Britton Davis was chosen to be their military agent, and he was in charge of getting them to their newly declared home. This group was delayed somewhat by high rushing water in the Black River, one of the main tributaries of the Salt River, but eventually the young lieutenant jury-rigged a crude poly and canvas boat operation that was able to see everyone across in safety. Shortly thereafter, they were met by a party under the leadership of Crook himself, who took the opportunity to meet with the Apache and implore them to settle down and work hard. The Apache, meanwhile, implored Crook to use whatever influence he could to free the Chiricahua who were still held captive in Mexico, especially the families of men like Chato and Geronimo. And I mention this because Crook gave his word and Chato bought into it hook, line, and sinker. He would become devoted to both Davis and Crook, something that would put him at odds with a lot of his people further down the road. Though he had been a fierce warrior down in Mexico and a bosom companion of Geronimo himself, Chato's turning to the scouts caused a deep rift between him and the older renegade which could not be healed. Hua's son would even later characterize Chato as a sort of Apache version of Benedict Arnold. But that's all in the future for now. At the end of this meeting, four of the Chiricahua leaders agreed to eventually go to Washington, D.C. to meet with the president, a pilgrimage that, as far as I can tell, had not happened since 1876, some eight years earlier when John Clum had gone back east with Cochise's son Tassa. And now this is pure speculation on my part, but his brother's death while visiting the American capital might be one of the reasons that Nietzsche was not one of the four who volunteered for the trip. On May 9th, 1884, the Apache arrived at Turkey Creek, which was situated at 8,000 feet elevation and was covered with streams, timber, and game for hunting. So pretty much the antithesis of the San Carlos Agency down along the Gila. It's estimated that they were able to get somewhere between 60 and 75 acres of potatoes, barley, corn, watermelon, onion, and pumpkin into the ground along both Turkey Creek and the White River. They were most excited for corn, however, because that meant they could make their beloved Tiswin. And this brings up a very important point. Tiswin is going to be a huge problem at Turkey Creek and would have a giant role in the lead-up to the next major breakout, which is only, spoiler alert, a year away. And it also shows a dichotomy in the Apache's willingness to abide by reservation rules. When it came to administration, who was in charge and who was supplying them with rations, the Chiricahua were more than happy to follow the lead of the U.S. Army officers put in charge of them. But when it came to cultural issues, or rather, when those same U.S. Army officers tried to push their own social mores onto the Apache, the Chiricahua were just not having it. They respected Crook, liked Crook, and even trusted Crook. But even when Crook told them not to drink Tiswin, they would simply not listen. Like any culture in the history of humanity, the Apache saw their alcohol as a social beverage, no different than the Americans' whiskey or beer, and it didn't matter how much the Americans tried to tamp down on it. I mean, down at San Carlos, Chief of Scouts Al Sieber was positively ruthless when it came to enforcing the Tiswin ban. 
up to and including making sure the Brewers had made their last batch, if you know what I mean. And it didn't stop at Tiswin. Crook also wanted to stop what he thought was the abhorrent practice of Apache men beating their wives, often with little or no provocation or reason. They were also in the habit of cutting off the tip of the woman's nose to punish her for committing adultery, though they made no such punishment for the man. Historian Edwin R. Sweeney says it best, quote, To well-meaning Americans, no rational Chiricahua could object to these common-sense issues. But to the Apache, these were cultural traditions that the government, even Crook, had no right to legislate, end quote. When Lieutenant Davis began an inspection of all the farms in mid-June 1884, he tried to lay down the same rules. No Tiswin and no wife-beating. And he would report nearly unanimous opposition to these edicts, with the Apaches saying that the only condition they agreed to was to live in peace on the reservation. So, but out. And Kaitene, who had ominously made his camp on top of a ridge that overlooked Davis's headquarters, saw a chance to keep being a rabble-rouser and encouraged others not to obey the lieutenant. Davis had one more problem to deal with, and that was the scouts he had with him. He had enlisted a company of some 23 Apache scouts, which included such notables as the leader Chihuahua and Geronimo Sanchapo, who served as something of a valet for him. Chato, whose name basically translates as flat nose because he had been kicked in the face by a mule, would become his first lieutenant and most trusted scout. Davis also had three quote-unquote secret scouts whose identities were not known to the Chiricahua, but would report to Davis any trouble. These would arrange for a meeting by throwing pebbles at Davis's tent, and either the officer would go out to the scout or the scout would discreetly then enter the tent. And it was this small secret police force that really rankled most of the Chiricahua, for all the usual reasons that no one likes prison snitches. In fact, it was a secret scout that brought Davis the news after his turkey dinner that his life had been in danger. Kaitene was the leader of that group of Chiricahua that had been in the middle of the Tiswin party when Davis was approaching the settlement. Rumors had been swirling around that Kaitene was hell-bent on causing trouble, talking about openly disobeying the ban on Tiswin and wife abuse and then making the most serious threat of all, leaving the reservation. Davis decided that he wasn't going to waste another minute on this nonsense, and so at 11 o'clock at night, he sent Lieutenant West, his guest, to Fort Apache with instructions to telegraph Crawford with the message that he was going to arrest the troublesome Chiricahua leader at sunrise. After receiving some reinforcements from Fort Apache, Davis called all the chiefs together at dawn on June 22, 1884, though by his own admission, he did not know if they would side with him or Kaitene. Like the surly teenager that he was, Kaitene did not apparently get out of bed immediately and had to be summoned to this meeting a second time. Fearing that he might be in trouble and might be the actual cause of this meeting, Kaitene spoke a few words to his entourage before boldly walking up to Davis himself and demanding to know why he had been summoned to which Davis decided that there was no beating around the bush. He announced that Kaitene was under arrest 
and would be sent down to San Carlos for trial. The young chief was furious and demanded to know who had complained about him and about what. When Davis coolly informed him that he would find that out when he went to San Carlos, Kaitene turned toward his companions who all drew weapons, which caused the scouts with Davis to draw their weapons. What followed was a good old-fashioned movie-quality standoff, with Kaitene refusing to back down and demanding again to know who was accusing him of what. And it's at this point that Davis also pulled a move straight out of a western film. He walked right up and unbuckled Kaitene's weapons belt and took his bullets and revolver right off of him. This move was so bold that it took all the wind out of Kaitene's sails. His men instantly backed down and before he knew it, he was being shipped south. Now, Kaitene would stand trial, after pleading that he could change and be better, I swear, but the outcome was never really in question. Crawford wanted him sent to Alcatraz, far, far away from his people and his ability to cause trouble. I wouldn't go so far as to call the trial a sham, but the deck was pretty well stacked against him, with Crawford being both prosecutor and and judge, and had a jury of Western Apache from various bands who weren't exactly simpatico with the Chiricahua. The jury foreman was none other than Eskimizen, the one-time belligerent who, despite his vow after the Camp Grant massacre not to trust white men again, was settling nicely into reservation life. Kaitene tried to put on a defense, saying that he hadn't done anything wrong, he hadn't stolen anything, and he definitely hadn't left the reservation. But like I said, though, it didn't really matter. Crawford knew he was a troublemaker. Everyone knew he was a troublemaker. And if he did ever leave the reservation, it could set a bad example for all his fellow Apache. Crawford would say, quote, I don't care what Kaitene says in his statement. I know that everything I say is the truth. End quote. Which is just exactly the kind of statement that you really never want to hear your judge say. After a deliberation of only 40 minutes, the jury came back with the predictable verdict, guilty, with a recommendation that he, quote, be punished severely, end quote. Crawford took that recommendation and ran with it, passing down a sentence that Kaitene should spend the next three years at Alcatraz, clapped in irons, dressed as a white man, and doing hard manual labor. Eskimson actually seconded this recommendation, recalling, quote, At one time, I was one of the worst Indians on the reservation until they punished me, putting irons on my legs. All this was good medicine for me, and it will be good for him. End quote. Still, the harshness of the sentence actually surprised Crook, who reached out to Crawford to make sure this is something that he really wanted to go forward with. But the captain was steadfast in his judgment, so... Crook went with his subordinate's recommendation. By August, Kaitene was on a train bound for San Francisco, though Crook did write to soften the punishment somewhat. The incorrigible young leader was to spend only one month on hard labor while clapped in irons, but after that he was to have some leniency and would even be allowed to leave Alcatraz to visit San Francisco. The punishment of Kaitene had little effect on the rest of the Chiricahua. Bonito, Nietzsche, Geronimo, and others, while they may have been personally indignant at the ruling, never made those feelings known publicly, 
nor did they cause any sort of ruckus about it. In fact, in several months, when Crook made another trip to San Carlos to confer with the Chiricahua, he floated the idea of commuting Kaitane's sentence to ease any sort of tensions. And to his great surprise, no one wanted the young leader back. They were all enjoying the peace with him gone, and Geronimo and Chato in particular argued that he should be left at Alcatraz. It's possible that Geronimo saw Kaitane as a rival for the hearts and minds of his people, so he was glad to have that particular roadblock out of his way. While Chato was just a policeman doing his job, and police always like it when troublemakers are out of town. Meanwhile, Crawford, too, was about to get a taste of what it was like to have a rival suddenly removed. You might remember from last week that after all the whining and complaining Wilcox had done, Crawford had called for a court of inquiry to look into his oversight at San Carlos. And that court of inquiry started up on April 29, 1884, just as Davis and the others were about to escort the Chiricahua to Turkey Creek. Many of the officers at San Carlos were called to testify, and Davis himself had to leave his charges in the hands of a replacement while he rode south to speak in Crawford's behalf. Finally, in mid-July, the court released its findings, and they were just what Crawford wanted to hear. He was cleared on all charges, and the court found that his administration had been wise, fair, and in the best interest of the Apache. It also showed that every allegation brought by Wilcox was spurious and a little more than a personal grudge. After this, Wilcox must have decided that enough was enough. As Sweeney points out, he had fought Crook and Crawford tooth and nail, and he really had nothing to show for it. So finally, at the end of August 1884, Wilcox just gave up and resigned. It had been two long, torturous years, but now the Indian agent who loved Denver, but hated his job, was finally gone. Cue sigh of relief from both Crawford and Crook. Overall, the summer was a good one for the army and for the Chiricahua under them. Davis spent the warmer months getting to know his charges better and building something of a rapport. Much like Crook, he began to see that all the force removals had taken a really heavy toll on the Chiricahua, and after hearing all their stories, he also began to sympathize with their position. He also saw that they were fearful of the future, later writing, quote, Above all, they wondered if they would now be allowed to live in peace. End quote. After carting off Kaitane to San Carlos for his trial, Davis began trying to be a little more flexible with the Chiricahua, including allowing a delegation to head to another site known as Ash Creek to gather acorns, which they ground into flour and mixed with meat to create a type of preserved meatball. However, Though he did try, the Chiricahua would never really feel about him the same way they felt about Crawford, who, with the exception of Geronimo, was universally respected by all the Apache. As 1884 was coming to a close, Crook made his third visit to the area of Fort Apache to check up on how the Chiricahua were faring. While he was there, they approached him with the one great concern that was still on their minds their captive family members still being held by the Mexicans. Crook had promised to use all his influence to free them, and to be fair to him, that was something he was actively working on. Since the summer, he had been pressuring his superiors in Washington to open an investigation 
into the Chiricahua still being held in Mexico. He correctly deduced that as long as their relatives were captive down there, there would always be an inducement for the Apache to head south again and raid in order to get something to trade for their loved ones. Unfortunately, this is the famed bureaucracy of the United States we're talking about, so push as he might, Crook was making very little actual headway. It would even take months after their return to San Carlos for the government to allow the members of Loco's band to return to their people from the Navajo reservation. These were the few who had escaped Geronimo's liberating-slash-kidnapping attempt two years before in 1882, which we talked about in episode 93. As I said, 1884 was quickly coming to a close, and that meant getting everyone ready for winter. Turkey Creek was an ideal location, but for only half the year. It was at 8,000 feet, which meant lots of brutal cold and snow, and the Chiricahua weren't exactly dressed for the weather. So, in mid-November, as the snow started falling, Lieutenant Davis led the Chiricahua to winter camps closer to the lower grounds around Fort Apache. The site was along the White River, and the Apache went about making camp in the canyons at the foothills of the White Mountains. Davis himself was glamping in style, as the quartermaster furnished him with a walled tent, complete with a floor and sideboards going up nearly to the roof of the tent. Despite this change in scenery and Davis's comfy new tent, they quickly found that the winter of 1884-85 would be brutally cold and unusually snowy. Still, the Chiricahua were doing pretty well at this point. Thanks to Crawford and Crook, the army was providing them with plenty of beef and flour, with small quantities of coffee, sugar, beans, and salt to boot. Unfortunately, since they no longer had to fend for food, there just wasn't that much to do. Davis would write that the Chiricahua only, quote, drew their rations, gambled, loafed, and quarreled, end quote. To be fair, though, Davis kept fairly close to his tent due to the harsh winter conditions and kept track of his charges mainly through his scouts and interpreters. A move that, in my opinion, probably kept him from forming the close bonds with the Chiricahua that he could have used. Alright, so let's see here. Plenty of food, nothing to do, and the boss man isn't around. Hmm... I wonder what the Apache will decide to do, given those conditions. What do you guys think? Sorry, did someone say, get drunk a lot? I think I heard someone say, get drunk a lot. And that would be the correct answer. The Apache had access to plenty of corn, which they now conveniently didn't need to keep themselves alive, so the illegal making of Tiswin started up again though that implies that it ever really went away in the first place, which it didn't. Davis's scouts were reporting to him regularly of yet another Tiswin drunk happening, usually when inclement weather was keeping the young lieutenant near his tent. He would write to Crawford, quote, We are having a great deal of trouble this winter with Tiswin parties. The Apache Calaboose, that is, the jail, has quite a number of Chiricahua and White Mountain Apache in it under that charge. End quote. These moonshiners were locked up anywhere between 10 days to 2 weeks, but the problem continued unabated. 
Davis would admit that there was just too many incidents to arrest everyone for Tiswin consumption, so he only went after the really aggravated cases. He also started to notice a troubling trend among some of the Chiricahua leaders, who had suddenly taken on a very defiant attitude about the ban. In particular, he singled out Chihuahua and Mangas, a son of Mangas Colorados, who were complaining loudly about their friends and relatives being arrested by scouts for either making, consuming, or being under the influence of Tiswin. Chihuahua was one story. He had always been a bit of a hard case when it came to reservation discipline. But Davis was surprised about Mangas, who had always been a supporter and had never made trouble. He soon learned the reason, however. It appears that one of Mangus's wives was actually a skilled moonshiner and the Tiswin she produced was in high demand, so the leader was simply speaking up for the family business. But as 1884 ended and 1885 began, that was the one and only problem that was really troubling the reservation. Overall, things were going great. You are probably as tired of hearing this as I am saying it, but that won't last. Davis couldn't have known it, but the issue with Tiswin was not going away anytime soon. And rather than be some quirky little cultural practice that the Chiricahua and the Americans playfully sparred over, it would flare up into a serious issue that they would have full-blown arguments about. And no one could see that in just five months' time, this issue, and more changes down at the San Carlos Agency, would undo everything Crook had accomplished. Less than two years after agreeing that he would live on the reservation, and less than a year after actually doing so, Geronimo would break out for the third and final time. That's where I'm going to leave things this week, but before I let you go, I want to end today with a small programming announcement. This is just an FYI that there will be an episode next week, and then I'll be taking a small two-week hiatus. The 4th of July is approaching, and for those of you who remember, I have an annual tradition for the holiday of getting together with some friends and nerding out for several days. That's quickly coming up, so I will not be able to get an episode out for July 3rd. But I'm also in charge of a main bulk of the festivities this year, so I need to switch my brain from worrying about what Geronimo is going to do next to worrying about making sure everyone has a good time. Because of that, I'm going to say that there will be no new episode on June 26th. But the good news is, there will be a new episode next week, and then I'll be back on July 10th to take everyone down the rabbit hole that is the final stages of the Apache Wars. Until then, I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.